The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And today I'm absolutely delighted. We're going to do something special because this is Ecopreneuring Week. We've got a 50-minute show, and I'm featuring two ecopreneurs, John Ivanko and Lisa Kivrist. They are prolific authors. They have left their high-speed life in Chicago for a rural renaissance existence. We're going to talk about that. And uh, I actually personally know Lisa very well because we are both food and society policy fellows. Lisa and John, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I have to ask you, first of all, since this is Ecopreneuring Week, what does it mean to be an ecopreneur? Yeah, well, actually, what's going on is it's called the Global Entrepreneurship Week through the Kauffman Foundation. It's designed to promote and support and celebrate entrepreneurs around the world that are doing innovative, creative things. And ecopreneuring, what we're passionate about and write about and do here on our Wisconsin farm and bed and breakfast in serendipity, is how can people blend their passions for the earth, their passions for sustainability, for healthy food, for renewable energy, for creating a better world for our children into a sustainable livelihood. And our message with Ecopreneuring the book is how can you do that in a self-employed capacity? How can you keep things lean and green, diversified, and do things smartly from a business perspective so that you can be passionate about what you do and, and wake up every morning wanting to do more of it? Well, you didn't start here, right? How did you two meet? John and I met shortly after college when we were both on that expected track, the track my mother still calls that normal people do, where you graduate school, you get a job with a paycheck and a two-by-three business card and a two-by-three cubicle to do your your work in. We both worked in advertising in Chicago and quickly realized on multiple levels that that wasn't the right fit for us. It didn't reflect the things we said we valued, the, the food we ate, or our community and family, and the ultimate goal of basically convincing people to buy more stuff didn't at all fit into our value system of wanting to create a better world and, and start looking at the seventh generation out. So so our roots where we met are really unrelated to what we're doing now, but we're the start of the journey of thinking out of the box and thinking about what we want to do and where we want to be, both as a couple and individuals, and creating a lifestyle around that, which really shook up the expected paths that we were trained to be on, be it through school, be it through media, be it through our families and society, to start authentically thinking about what it is that we want to do and how could we make it happen. Yeah, Melinda, the big big thing for us is we, we realized that we wanted a life beyond just getting a paycheck, and we wanted our work to be a little bit more or a lot more about leaving a legacy and a lot less about making someone else rich and working for their dream and not ours. And in the context of things, we started realizing that, at least in the companies we were working for, and in this case it was a large ad agency, it was all about profits and it was all, all about you know, building market share. And, you know, when we started talking to people to work on the ecopreneuring book, we discovered there's a lot of other entrepreneurs out there. Uh, we call them ecopreneurs who are prioritizing purpose over profits and actually focus a little bit more on their community and their own family and, and the health and well-being of their, uh, their community over building market share. It's a very different um, approach to things. And we also... Uh, relatedly, uh, began to realize that uh, there's this whole concept of triple bottom line enterprises. It's, it's about people, planet, and profits. It's not just about profit. And a good portion of ecopreneuring goes into exactly what does that mean and, and what kind of uh, forms that may take in various enterprises, whether they're for-profit or non-profit. actually doesn't really make any difference. And we actually feature several different hybrid organizations in the book where they're a little bit of both, and they keep you know, the entities 
distinct, but they're very related. So ecopreneuring and you know, our evolution and, and growth it came really from our understanding of how disconnected we were from, from nature, from our food sources, from our energy sources, from all those things that we say we value, like friends and family. We wanted to reinvent all of that or rethink all of that and hit on something that uh, would make a lot more sense for us and for our life and for our community. So you're in Chicago, you're realizing that you want a better life, and then what happened? You just picked up and found a wonderful farm and inn in Wisconsin. How did all those pieces fall into place? It took a couple of years. The first thing we did was completely alter our consumption and spending habits. We were caught in that trap of earn and spend and eating takeout and the processed convenience lifestyle. And it's interesting because when we made the commitment to moving out of that and moving to our rural setting and wanting to save for a down payment and all of that, we, we, we started rediscovering food. We started learning how to cook. We started learning how to eat healthy and nutritious but low cost. And that started transforming the process. But again, those things took a couple of years both to realign our lifestyle habits, save some money, and, and try some things along the way. When we first decided to make the leap, we didn't have a complete vision of what in serendipity is today. So we needed to learn things that urban kids don't know, like what is a well, what is a septic. We had a vision of living rural, but we did not have a grasp of the reality at that time. And it's amazing how we feel, at least, when you start to make these changes in your life, moving towards where your heart is, people, mentors appear that magically make things happen from our realtor who adopted us along the way and tutored us in those sort of farmstead issues to neighbors down the road once we moved here who just happened to live down the road who are affectionately called Uncle Phil and Aunt Judy now who turns out they ran a renewable energy business during the 1970s and have tutored us in anything from the wind turbine to canning tomatoes and we had no idea that they were going to be here when we moved here but it's amazing the types of opportunities that serendipitously at times come up when you start moving towards what you're passionate about. Well, it's a great name for a bed and breakfast in Serendipity, and it's in Browntown, Wisconsin. Is that correct? Yep. We're about an hour south of Madison, about two hours northwest of Chicago. Now, when you first bought this property, was it all ready to go with regard to sustainable energy, or you, or did you re-rig this place? Well, it's, it's interesting that the former owners were very perplexed why we kept on going in and out of the upstairs uh, <laughs> closets. Um, we were trying to size up if we were to add a, or create a B&B out of their farmhouse. Is you can it afford to be ha- to, ha- to allow us to have two bathrooms? And so that was the priority there, trying to make sure that the basic home would serve. What we our intent was is to create this bed and breakfast, this two room bed and breakfast, a small and maybe on the innkeeper scale, but quite viable for us as a part of the diversified things that we do on an annual basis. But everything else kind of became a, an evolution, and that's very much what we're our, our first collaborative book together, Rural Renaissance, goes into. It's it step by step. We go through, look at conservation and efficiency of the home, and we started switching out. We, we actually took a General Motors-made refrigerator uh, in our kitchen and switch it to a Sunfrost refrigerator. So we went from probably one of the least efficient appliances on the planet, although it was still running, and switched it to one of the most efficient refrigerators on the planet. So it's very interesting, and that immediately the next year, our electricity use went down almost a 1,000 kilowatt hours just in that one year because of that one switch. And so... Rural Renaissance goes into all these different aspects of things from the trying to figure out how to plant potatoes for the first time in the garden. We had no background and no experience in any of this. We did have mentors, and we constantly called on them. There's plenty of books, including the Rodale Organic Gardening book, that we kept on referencing as we were going through step-by-step in terms of our growing and gardening side of our operation. And we started messing around. We're, you know, Given that we're in Wisconsin with all of the cheese factories around us, we, we started out a little heavy on the cheese, and we slowly <laughs> learned how to cook pretty well with with cheese, but using a lot less of that and a lot more of the fresh fresh vegetables that we've been able to harvest directly from the garden. So that's a big part of our learning over the last now 13 years that we've been in operation. Uh, and we've become a culinary destination 
perhaps more than even a renewable energy destination. There are more people that enjoy eating than are thinking about putting up a 10KW Berge wind turbine, which is one of the things we have here. So we, we evaluated the site for the capability of using different renewable energies once we had addressed all the conservation and efficiency steps that we could possibly easily do. And so it set up the possibility of getting into solar thermal systems, which is how we heat our shower water here. We also got into a photovoltaic system where we make some electricity directly from the sunlight and then the, the wind turbine, which is we, where we get the bulk of our renewable energy from and actually overproduce about 4,000 kilowatt hours a year. So we at In Serendipity get paid by our utility company on an annual basis. Well, I'm so impressed. You've got this award-winning In Serendipity bed and breakfast, and I want to just let our listeners know that this is completely powered by renewable energy, and you are among the top 10 eco-destinations in North America. And so you've gone from urban Chicago, high-powered advertising life, to this wonderful, uh, calm, and sustainable existence. You have an 8-year-old son that you are homeschooling and raising in this wonderful rural environment. What's it like? When did Liam come onto the scene? Liam just turned eight, and uh, you gave us a very nice description there. Aside from the word calm, (laughs) um, I think it's interesting because people have a perception, we do, of rural settings as being very bucolic and calm, but there's a very vibrant energy in farmsteads like this that we find very inspiring. And it's not the crazy, out-of-control chaos of the corporate urban cubicle scene, but there's a dynamic of being on the farmstead and living very seasonally. Uh, Believe me, August was utter chaos because that was our peak B&B season and there was always something to harvest and process, etc., in the garden and writing deadlines and all those things on top, but that's balanced with November, the time of year now where things slow down significantly and we can recoup and regenerate. And those are natural cycles that we had no sense of when we were living in a much more processed concrete environment. But but to your question about Liam, he uh, has, has been around for eight years now and has definitely added another element to just about everything around here. It's fascinating to watch a child grow up on a farm because their connection to everything, much less their food sources, is inherent in their everyday. And if he's hungry in the summer, we can just say, go out and pick and eat something. And I'm no child psychologist or don't have nearly the nutrition background that you have, Melinda, but I can say from our assessment of a sample size of one that kids who go out into the garden and plant and grow and harvest their own food will eat anything. They'll try anything. And they get more experimentative and creative. Liam is at that stage now where he can start raising some things up by himself. And this year his crop was popcorn. So he grew some different heirloom species of popcorn and is figuring out now how to dry them and use them as some upcoming holiday gifts. I think he must have a really rich life. I hope so. You know, it's interesting because we often get questions like, well, gee, how can you raise an only child on a farmstead that's remotely located? And people have an inherent rationale today that children need constant stimulation, be it media, be it other people, be it a laundry list of classes and extracurriculars. And we're losing that sense that children have an amazing innate ability when given the right situation to be creatively engaged and entertained. And we find Liam all the time if he finds a praying mantis or a unique bug just staring at it and watching it and then reading about it or doing anything else related to it and that's because of the environment he's in yeah i think it's i think it's very healthy and i just want to mention also that john i didn't realize that you were the author of children's books six multicultural children's books including the award winning be my neighbor to be an artist and to be a kid how did you get involved with that line of work? Well, it's one of those serendipitous parts of, of one's life. If one opens up enough time and creativity, these kind of things sometimes happen. In this case, I had, as a part of my transition out of the, the corporate scene in, in downtown Chicago, I did a bit of traveling, and that trip took me all the way around the world. And as a part of that, I ended up taking quite a few photographs as well. 
when I re- returned back to the U.S., I had you know somewhere in the neighborhood of twenty to thirty thousand photographs. And serendipitously, one of Lisa's friends mentioned an organization that was at the very starting stages called Shakti for Children, now called the Global Fund for Children, and it connected with the executive director Maya Ajmera, which is. She's also my co-author on all of the six books that we worked on together. And I had these photographs and this understanding that you know, not only do we need to preserve our ecological diversity, but we need to preserve our cultural diversity. And in sort of the same breath, also come to better understand how we're different and very much the same in different parts of the world. So it's, it's very much related to everything we're doing. It just takes more of a cultural, social perspective on all of this, and I connected with Maya, and, and she invited me to work with her on the To Be a Kid book, and that kind of mushroomed into an additional five books, uh, focusing on some sort of subtopics or themes in the in the first one, which has done extremely well, and it is distributed, and all of them are, are finding their way all the way around the world. So part of it is just you know kind of being comfortable enough and, and following your passions and following that sense of meaning and not getting all bogged down in, well, gosh, how much am I going to get paid for this and how much money do I need to make for that? And that's the thing that Lisa alluded to earlier on. A lot of the ecopreneurs that we have interviewed and several that we feature in the book have become very good at living at or below their means and are very focused on their mission of what they're trying to do. And they, in essence, use their business to accomplish whatever that mission is to make the world a better place. That might be multicultural children's books. It might be uh, nonprofits helping create green travel opportunities with a strong food focus like Green Routes does. It could mean any number of things. And the point, though, is that they, that they have been able to understand what they need to, to have it all work. In the, and more often than not, when you're really creative and really innovative and you have the time to devote to these projects, you become quite successful at them. Perhaps not necessarily financially, but in so many other ways that in our case, as you pointed out with Liam, he may not have all the fanciest clothes, but he has a very, very rich life in many, many more ways than just one food that we might put on the table. I mean, there's just incredible opportunities for him to grow and learn, and that is very much the same part of our life, and in many ways, part of the discussion of these emerging lifestyle entrepreneur movement is, is people trying to use their business to have these you know, accomplish these kind of changes they need to take place in the world, and at the same time, create the kind of life where they, if they wanted to raise their own kid, and they don't want to put them in a daycare situation, that they have the option to do so. What are your challenges with regard to the adopting this kind of lifestyle? That's a good question. Well, there's there's challenges that are thrown your way that are out of your control. The season is very cold and rainy and our tomatoes never come to harvest or we have climactic changes that are, well, indirectly in our control, we fully believe, but are those situations that just happen where at our cabin property up north we had the 500-year flood two years in a row and that washed out our driveway, which both uh, affected our business income that summer. Those two summers, but our, our challenge is always, and maybe it's a creative challenge in that John and I really work hard at keeping things new and fresh. Be it fresh things that we plant and harvest, be it a new recipe, be it how we approach the garden, be it things for the farm, to both our own writing work and our educational work of constantly having a newness that keeps us fresh and vibrant in it. I mean, I think people are very similar to how we should be managing our soil and that we need a diversity, we need fresh compost, we need a seasonal approach, and we need time for renewal and time for growth. And keeping on that track is always a challenge in that we need to keep it fueled and And again, going back to the season analogy, now that we're heading into the winter months, that's a big time for us to refuel to both finish some creative projects and generate new ideas. John, how would you answer that question? I don't see things so much from a challenge as an opportunity. You know, a lot of folks right now are very much kind of in this scarcity and fear mode of living. Do I, am I going to have a job next week? Am I going to have enough money to pay for my utility bill next month? 
and we don't see it at all that way. We very much focus on the abundance and everything we've done from the food we're growing in the garden, and if anyone ever planted a tomato plant, they know in a, in a good season just how many tomatoes you can get off one plant, or zucchini, good grief, um, you can't even keep track if you are in a good area of the country for that. So we thrive under this abundance of solar energy, of creativity and innovation, and there the sense of you know having that feeling of doing what you really want to be doing and having the control and the flexibility of that far surpasses getting a, a paycheck bonus at the end of the year if we're a large company again when you're not really connected or feel connected to the things you're you're doing and you know the the projects or, or services that you're you're offering and so you know, for us the challenge for me the challenges are are really opportunities of how can we we hear a lot of talk, for example, recently about energy independence. America needs energy independence, and they're all talking about from foreign oil. Energy independence that in serendipity started 13 years ago, and it was to break ourselves from fossil fuels. So this place is almost exclusively powered by the wind and the sun. It's, you know, from an electricity standpoint, it totally is, but we use wood for, for heat in the winter, and we actually make our own biodiesel as a backup heating system for our greenhouse. Uh, made with waste fryer oil. And so this sense of abundance, we have so much waste in our culture. How can we use that waste for productive means and, and reuse some of this material? And, you know, the, the fryer oil is a great example of taking a waste stream and turning it into you know, a positive attribute that actually allows us to meet our energy needs ourselves here on site or in our community versus having to import the stuff from halfway around the world. So that's the, very much the world that I tend to think more about. And when we brush up against something that we that causes us to evaluate, maybe you might call it a challenge, but we evaluate it. We look at the many different ways we can go uh, to solve things. And it, it can be a little challenging or overwhelming from the standpoint of the amount of information and the research we might have to do. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the end, that's the kind of thought and mindfulness that we try to approach much of what we've done. Not that we've done everything perfect. I mean, we do have an inverter that went haywire on us for one of our PV systems after only five years. So we do make mistakes as things that don't work out quite the way we want. But that's that's life, and we kind of move on, see what we can learn from it, and go to the next level. Now, do you have a community of ecopreneurs that you can bounce ideas off of or you know, maybe even share in the rearing of Liam. I, you know, parents tell me typically that one of the reasons why they're reluctant to remove their children from mainstream America, and by that I mean the media and the things that they seem to want, is because they don't want to make their child feel different from the rest. And so I can see this value of having a larger ecopreneuring community with whom to interact and for Liam to have friends who, you know, so he's not the only one who's living in this environment, but there are others who share your values. Well, we have that sense of community within the homeschooling network throughout our immediate Monroe, uh, Wisconsin area. But the the community, I think you're seeing it strictly place-centered, and we also see it every time we go to the Midwest Renewable Energy Association. We go up there for four days. It's like a mini holiday, and he just hangs out in the kid tent. And, uh, or, or the Upper Midwest Organic Farming Conference is another one where he has friends he cross paths with just once a year, but every year at that particular conference. And they hang out and they do things, and it just turns out one of his buddies he met there this year actually was not too far away from one of our cabin properties. So now we Every time I go up, we make a special effort to connect the two kids during that time. So it's, 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 there's a lot of different layers to it all. The other side of it, though, is we're able to have very, very rich relationships with, with grandparents, much more so than if we were in a traditional work-a-day world. So where some kids, you know, five or six or maybe one week out of the year, grandma and grandpa, you know, visits. You know, Liam gets probably upwards of five to uh, seven weeks a year, at least, so far uh, in terms of interaction with them. And that was, again, a very important priority for us uh, to have those kind of relationships to him to connect with the broader family and you know, do so outside Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter, you know, the big holidays. And uh, I think it allowed him to have a much, again, richer life uh, and relationship with them in, in a very deeper, much more meaningful way. 
I absolutely agree with you. You know, I, I want to just stop here and let our listeners know that we're talking with Lisa Kivrist and John Ivanko. They are ecopreneurs. They are prolific writers, photographers, award, award-winning authors, I might add. They are the living definition of ecopreneurs. They are innkeepers also. They are in serendipity, is totally running on renewable energy. They are raising an eight-year-old son in a very rich way. We'll take a break, and we will return with more with Lisa and John. Welcome back to Food Sleuth Radio. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Lisa Kiverest and John Ivanko in honor of Global Entrepreneurship Week. John and Lisa are co-authors of the award-winning book, Ecopreneuring, Putting Purpose and the Planet Before Profits, and they are innkeepers at In Serendipity Bed and Breakfast, which is completely powered by renewable energy. Lisa and John, I want to ask you a question on your Ecopreneuring, Putting Purpose and the Planet Before Profits book page on the web. You write something here that I think is very important to restate. You say, in a workforce where job security, a pension, and affordable health care are a thing of the past, social trends are moving toward greater self-reliance, relocalization, and sustainability. I have to ask you about health care. And I love the title Rural Renaissance, by the way, and this whole idea of calling going back to the land the rural renaissance. I've often thought that we would have a true renaissance in this country if artists could be artists without having to worry about that big elephant in the room, which is, how am I going to have health care for my family? What do you do? Well, very soon, if everything goes well in uh, Washington, D.C., most, with the exception of maybe 10 million or so Americans, will have some sort of access to affordable health care, either through the federal government or administered state by state. Most states have something equivalent to um, sort of a, a family care program, and it's, it's very much based upon how much income you generate as a part of whatever your small business is. And that's exactly what we were able to participate in or qualify for in the state of Wisconsin, one of the first states in the nation that actually provides coverage for nearly all of its residents. There's, a, I think, one or two other states that are doing that, but the federal government is also realizing that as a, as a country of our magnitude and leadership and world stature, it's pretty starkly surprising that uh, a right to access to affordable health care is not a right of an American citizen. So I, I think we're finally coming along to a point where there's some movement in that direction to make that possible. So that said, we have this state-sponsored health care program that we qualify for and participate in. The thing is, we don't want to go to the hospital. Right. That's not the goal, is to have health care to go to the hospital. And so we prioritize um, home care which is focusing on eating well, regularly exercising, removing the amount, to the extent we can, stress out of our lives. And that translates to if I don't like the company or a magazine I used to write for, I don't write for them anymore. It's simple as that. If, I, if it's stressful and it's not working for me, we, we, we walk, at a, walk away from it and find something else. And being diversified as part of our enterprise, and again, that's a big theme in ecopreneuring, the book, we have over a thousand paychecks per year between B and B guests, magazine articles, photography. Con- I mean, imagine that a thousand different paychecks coming in versus one paycheck that we had at Leo, we're at our advertising agency. One mm-hmm. paycheck, one W two. We're just one pink slip away from complete chaos. Um, so it's very, very different when you, you're running your own enterprise and controlling that. And from the standpoint of home care. You know, we look at that family integration side of things too, and we're all taking care of each other, and we're looking after each other as as a co-partner, innkeeper, writer, author team. Lisa and I have. We, if one of us goes down, the other has to immediately step in and take things over and and help, you know, pick up the, the loose ends so the other person can quickly get themselves back on track. But that doesn't mean that the other person kind of working in half-mast in the office. Now, that other person, that partner, checks out until they're healthy again. And we're able to just adjust what we do and how we do it to, to give us the, the ability and the flexibility and the control to be able to do that. And sure enough, if we do get a cold, we're usually back after only a day or two. 
I mean, we don't have the three-week lingering coughs and colds here if we even get them. We're, in general, extremely healthy, but we really have put that high priority on health and wellness so that we don't have to go into the, as most people think about it, the, the, the actual medical world of going into the clinic or the hospital to get treated for something. So it, it's a very different approach to things. So we only have so much time on Earth, and there are all these cool things to do, and death is just around the corner. So if you're not doing what you really love to do right now, you need to, because you never know how long you have. And so we've just really rethought our approach to living and the work that we do and the relationships we have with people and put that as the top priority. And sure enough, our health and health care has not been much of an issue. So ecopreneuring, putting purpose and the planet before profits, there are three, three emphasis areas. Having a purpose, which of course leads to, I think, a very fulfilled life. Living well, which you're doing certainly with, with your food and your environment. And restoring the earth, which indeed you're doing with your renewable energy sources and the way in which you grow food organically. Lisa, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about how ecopreneuring relates to transforming our food system. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Oh, sure, sure. Uh, Multiple levels. One perspective is people who are starting food-based businesses. That could be anything from us in a bed-and-breakfast environment. We're very much food-based. It involves other aspects as well, the hospitality, the tourism, the lodging, etc. But our passions for food revolve around every breakfast, and that involves the 100-foot breakfast, as we like to call it, from garden to plate, and introducing people to, in many cases, foods they've never had, like rutabagas roasted for breakfast as a side dish, or zucchini in three different ways on your plate if you came here in July. So that's an opportunity for a lot of people to think about, why am I passionate about food, and how can I create a livelihood around it? Now, farming is obviously an important arena, too, for folks who are passionate about food. And you see that both within the growth of young, beginning farmers, small-scale agriculture, local agriculture. You definitely see that amongst the growth of women farmers. There's a 30% increase in the number of women farmers, according to the USDA. So you see that motivated by people who, in many cases, have no background in farming, no background in agriculture, but want to give it a go, want to learn, are passionate about making a difference in that. So food definitely much can play a part of someone's life from a business livelihood perspective, if that's what one desires. But food is inherently even more a part of ecopreneuring because we all eat. And no matter what business you may be in, you're eating your meals three times a day, you're eating with your family, you're purchasing food, and you're responsible for how you make those decisions. And that's a, a deep philosophy in ecopreneuring is to put your value where your purchases are. And we serve organic food here at the Bed and Breakfast for the foods we can't grow. And we do grow about 70% of our own food needs here on the farm. But things like sugar, things like coffee, we try to make those purchases reflect our values by seeking out fair trade opportunities, by seeking out things that are grown organically, that are as local as possible. There's various layers, and we are constantly learning, and there's constantly new opportunities for making better purchases on that front. But that's very much a part of our business and livelihood mix and ones that we um, take very seriously. Well, you had put together a wonderful panel at the Community Food Security Coalition, and I know you are the director also of the Rural Women's Project, where you brought together women who had different experiences with the food system and interacting with their food system, everywhere from, anywhere from students to farmers. How did you get involved with this Rural Women's Project, and what do you see as being the most important things that are happening as a result? One of my interests in the role of women in our food system is, well, both the fact that, as I just mentioned, there are an increasing number significantly of women starting new farms. Now, granted, it's small significantly in the big picture, but it's a very vibrant dynamic that has a real potential to change what's on our plate. But even more so, when you parallel that with the fact that 80% of U.S. household spending purchases, the decisions are made by women anything from what we buy at the grocery store to what we go to the farmer's market for, etc. So when you add those two elements together and the fact that 
in our role, particularly as parents, we want to make the best decisions that we can for our children's health and what's on their plate, that women have very much a potential to transform our food system. Now, there's a lot of issues related to that. We have income issues. We have food access issues. And those are the issues that I work on, particularly in the role of beginning women farmers, of what do women farmers need to make a successful go of it. And in many cases, and this was definitely represented at that panel at the Community Food Security Coalition, which thank you for your participation in that, Melinda. It was a diverse array of people, but that proved the point that women who want to start these food-based businesses and make food choices that reflect their values need that networking, need those connections with other women, be it for support, be it for mentorship, be it for ideas and resources. And the more opportunities we have to stir those types of situations up, the better. Well, this is probably the second or third event that I've either participated in with you or witnessed uh, your bringing together. And I have seen packed rooms of vibrant women literally changing the world. So I want to thank you for your work in that area. I think we are truly on our journey for a renaissance. And in fact, speaking of renaissance, I'm sitting here with your book, Renewing the Countryside. This one deals specifically with uh, Wisconsin families and stories about uh, their particular experiences in the countryside. Did anybody from from this book, I'm sure many did, but are there any stories from this book that you were especially touched by? Well, the Renewing the Countryside Wisconsin book came about through the efforts of the nonprofit of the same name, Renewing the Countryside, which is a Minnesota-based organization that focuses on exactly what you're describing, promoting the positive stories of rural revitalization. What are people doing in small towns throughout America and agricultural areas and tourism and artisans to really give rebirth and vitality to our rural economies. We're a little biased, of course, towards Wisconsin. We have wonderful, lots of great stories here, but in that book are 39 stories throughout the state of what people are doing creatively, and there's a number of them. In in all situations, though, uh, if I could summarize some of the stories, it's either people who had visionary leadership 20 years ago when this whole sustainability movement wasn't nearly what it is today, but if you look at organizations that are Wisconsin-based leading national organizations, MOSES, the Midwest Organic Sustainable Educational Service, the Midwest Renewable Energy Association, Organic Valley, these three organizations and companies started in Wisconsin 20 years with a handful of people, a dream and a dime. But these are the types of leaders that we're talking about who who see the future, who say, hey, we need to start making some changes now because of what's coming. And that I find very inspiring. And and also in the stories you see a lot of business as unusual, of people who are taking new, fresh approaches to things and, again, creating businesses along their values. There's a number of food-specific businesses in the book. Uh, One of them is, for example, Krusenbaum Dairy Farm, which farms with the Organic Valley Cooperative. But here's a farm that, again, is doing things differently. They, for example, lease their land from a land trust rather than own the farm. And here in the States, we have such a mentality that farmers need to own their land. Well, do you? Because in this case, they have more cash in the bank than is vested in their land. And they have more economic flow from that cash in the bank than at least farmers around here do, because all of it's tied up in their land. So in many cases, situations like that can dynamically change one's perspective, one's financial perspective, and one's livelihood. And that's what showcased in the story is how people are doing that. Yeah, it's really an inspirational collection. Definitely. Well, tell me a little bit about this whole concept of multiple economies of ecopreneurship. I know you touched on you touched on that a little bit earlier, John, but what does it mean exactly? Well, it, it's getting back to the idea that at one point, maybe a hundred years ago in the United States, you know, people were doing some cash transactions, but there were a whole lot of other economies as well that people were interacting on. And, you know, keeping in mind around that time, about 50% of Americans were still in rural slash farm areas. 
And so there was a, a much stronger, I think, connection to the land and to growing things. But the whole idea is looking at things outside that cash economy. Uh, so you have the household economy, which is really just the whole idea of self-sufficiency and self-reliance and perhaps energy and food. And we all know just how much uh, people are now going to their own backyards again to grow at least some of their own food, even if it's just a couple of container plants of tomatoes and basil. It's a start in the, in the right direction of that greater sense of self-reliance. Uh, but people are they're doing that, uh, and more and more, you know, looking at, you know, is there a way that I can avoid having to contract this out or, or sign a service contract for someone to mow my own lawn or, or, or do things, you know, clean my own house? How can I do this myself? Again, and you know, get back to that. But there's also the the barter economy, and that's something that uh, we noticed is a very, very strong area of growth within a lot of the entrepreneurial businesses and people we talk with is looking at ways of swapping things out in a, in a barter transaction mode where cash is not necessary or needed, but there is some value that's being exchanged and the relationship that's being built as a result of that. The reuse economy, uh, most folks now have, have come across a Craigslist listing or or a free cycle um, listing where you know people are moving things around freely using the uh, the internet and some website resources to be able to have folks rather than dumping something out or throwing something out into a dump or actually able to find someone else in their community to reuse this appliance or or even in our case we even recycled our chickens at one point for someone who was interested in using them for stewing chickens so and of course there's the the volunteer and gift economy and most folks that are growing zucchini are rather uh, free with their bounty uh, once the middle part of the summer rolls around. And so people are exchanging food, but a lot of other things can be exchanged as well within communities, skills, uh, computer knowledge. And so a part of that whole multiple economies of ecopreneurship, these entrepreneurs, uh, ecopreneurs have really figured out how to focus a little bit more on those and focus a lot less on how do I have to make more money so that I can do all these things I need to do? So they're getting, again, back to what we talked about a little earlier on in the show, it's getting into that sense of creativity. How can I get where I need to go? But if I don't have a lot of money, is there another way I can get there? And can I build another relationship? Can I build another partnership uh, to allow me to accomplish this mission through my business? And all of the the entrepreneurs that we talk with, in rare exception, have have definitely tapped into or have had a toe in into these non-cash economies in various ways, whether it's swapping out ads on websites or whether it's, which we do is we'll you know, need something done at the B&B and, you know, who knows, maybe one of our B&B guests will actually help us accomplish something that we need to do anyway. And in our case, there's a story in, in, our, in our books about how we ended up accomplishing, you know, the tiling of our front porch and our replacement of our kitchen countertop. And it's a B&B guest that helped make that happen. And they, they went from being a consumer, which is how everyone likes to call people here in America, unfortunately, to a customer and, 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 and the relationship we have kind of shifted out of you know, it being beyond just a transaction, but it was a relationship that we've been able to cultivate. And a lot, if, if you, you know, go to a farmer's market, you'll realize that the good portion of the people there might be there for food, but they're also there for community and for those relationships. You know, that's very much the kind of movement that we're all talking about. And then at the end of the day, you realize that you don't ever want to go back. At least that's been my experience. You know, when I, when I first became acquainted with the whole sustainable movement and the people who were very active within it, I realized what I found was a genuine human being. And I wanted more relationships with people like that who weren't so driven towards that consumer society. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And in, in, in the same sense, when you get out of that consumption and you get in, participate more in these relationships and develop more collaborations and cooperative arrangements, you end up you know, having a, an incredibly rich life but without having to make all this money to have it. And, and that was our stunning conclusion once we started getting into our bold experiment here <laughs> at In Serendipity is we got into this in about eight or nine years into it where all of a sudden 
we were figuring out how to grow potatoes, and we were actually, now we're at a point where I've got leaks all over my front porch, and uh, there's bags going out all over the community right now, because I can't, we can't eat all this stuff. And you know, we, we have, this, and at the same time, some of this stuff is ending up at people who help us put back together musical instruments that at various times have busted and broken. And, and so we're, we're throwing it out and going out and buying something new. You know, we, we've connected with people in our community that know how to fix things. Someone helped me with QuickBooks at one point, and she was more than happy to get a generous box of produce in the middle of the summer. I couldn't give it to her when she was helping me in December, but I definitely had it to spare in a major way in, in July. And so, and she was very appreciative of it, and she wasn't looking for the money. And that's a little bit of how things might be a little different in still in a lot, a lot of the rural areas. Is you know There are these relationships and things you know, people not necessarily keeping track, but but exchanging things back and forth and looking after each other, and you know that was very much something we were seeking when we left the city, and we very much have found yeah. thirteen years later. This certainly is a growing trend, and uh, when I was up at the Moses meeting, which is the Midwestern Organic Sustainable and Educa- Education Service meeting, what I saw there was hope that really there were so many more people returning to the land and wanting to have these genuine relationships, that everything was indeed connected. Do you have any numbers? Like how many people count themselves to be like you? There are no numbers, and that's part of the magic of this. But about one out of every four Americans are a free agent in various ways, whether you're doing website design work or writing articles or blogging. So it's a fairly large group of people. There's about 23 million micro-enterprises. Those are businesses with five or fewer employees. What's most interesting, though, is about 75% of all businesses only have one person. Those are your shopkeepers, your artists, your craftspeople, and, yes, usually your farmers, especially the smaller farmer group. You know, some of these folks, they're self-employed, and some of them don't even have an explicitly a payroll. So the government's not paying attention, and yet if the last recession is any indication, it's these small businesses are what keep America going. It's the small businesses that end up growing just enough to get up to a certain scale where they may actually may hire an employee or two or a part-timer to help them with whatever their business is. It's just the small businesses that have always been kind of the, the in, part of this innovation economy. It's, it's the small businesses that have, have kept America going in the direction it has been going. It's not the big bank of Americas that are making it necessarily happen. So I think from the standpoint of, the, of this movement, it's just finding places like it, the Midwest Organic Farming Conference or venues where all these people come together and cross-pollinate ideas and work out resources and collect new ideas for for new projects. That's where some magic really can happen in the whole entrepreneur movement. Look at it from the standpoint of growing together. It creates a new mode of, of living on Earth and from the standpoint of what needs to be done from climate change to ecological issues, it's all a part of this, what we write about, this restoration economy. It's making things, fixing things that are broken. And from the standpoint of whether it's land that has been so degraded, you have to restore the soil quality, or clean up the air with a wind turbine, you know, switching away from coal fire power plants. It's all a part of that restoration economy. And if there's a concentration of people all moving in that same, same direction, Shazam, suddenly you have a situation where the whole country has kind of returned to this uh, entrepreneurial world that we live in, and it's not all about having a job and trudging off to work on Monday and coming home on Friday and doing it all over again the following week. It gets back to that Jeffersonian idea almost. of uh, he, he had a vision of an Amer- agrarian America. We have a, a little different vision of that. It's a, a country filled with shopkeepers and innkeepers and farmers and radio hosts. I mean, everyone doing their own thing, whatever they're passionate about, and creating a little enterprise around that. Well, I have to say, Lisa had sent me a link to a YouTube that was talking about how not getting bigger is not better. Lisa, tell me about that YouTube. I wish that I had that link here in front of me because it's wonderful, and I think everybody should look at it. Sure, that's a project that we worked on jointly with a local upstart filmmaker here to add some visual to the concept behind ecopreneuring in that 
yeah, the equation that we've been sold on isn't working anymore, that constant growth doesn't add up. And to reevaluate that equation and focus on the small and focus on the things that don't necessarily at all add up into the GNP, but that growing your own tomatoes, growing your own power at home, raising your own children do add to that much bigger equation of better quality of life. If we wanted to do a, a search, we would search YouTube, and is it enough to put in ecopreneuring to get that? You can that? probably search it and then find in serendipity all one word. Okay, that's that great. show up quicker. Sure. Well, I want to let all of our listeners know. I probably should go and reserve my own time at the end before I let this out. But, okay, if anybody wants to visit In Serendipity, it's www.inserendipity.com. And you can learn and meet all about Lisa and John. I want to ask you something. So I'm sure, like me, there are lots of people listening to this interview and getting really excited about the alternatives. What are some tips for folks who are interested in starting to go down this path, whether they want to go down a food-based business or whether they want to be more uh, sustainable with regard to their energy use, or if they, want to, if they want to leave their cubicle and be ecopreneurs, what are some of the first steps we can take? Well, one thing that we did when we were talking about our journey here once we quit those jobs and left them behind was to live as lean and green as possible. Part of the equation that's worked for us is the less we need income-wise, the more independence we have, the more opportunity we have to take on a writing project that might not have a budget to pay as well as another one, but it's something we feel really strongly about, or to be volunteering our time at places like the Moses Conference and the MREA Energy Fair, because they're things that we feel strongly about. That is a huge factor in the equation for us that really opened up a lot of opportunity. And also to keep diversified. Uh, we get folks coming through the B&B frequently with asking the same question, Melinda, and we love to talk about it at length, especially into the night around the campfire. And people often get fixed on the, I need my next one big thing. What's my next career goal? What's my next job description? And, and I personally went through a lot of that after leaving the ad agency of, well, what's my next thing? And I realized in the process that that was my problem, was I didn't want one thing. I want to be cooking muffins in the morning and writing in the afternoon and playing with Liam and doing all these things in a setting that I love and adore looking out the window. And again, that changes the equation because rather than finding the job that will provide the fulfillment and the income, can you slice that up? And as John put it, we have multiple paychecks coming in, but that adds up both to our, our, our financial livelihood, but much more so to that bottom line equation of quality of life. Our, our time, unfortunately, has come to a close. But I want to give each of you just a minute to send us off with one last thought. Given that it is Global Entrepreneurship Week, to remember the fact that none of us are alone in this journey. We're connected to other people. We're connected to other entities and organizations. And that would be another tip on my end is to surround yourself with kindred spirits, to surround yourself with people who are thinking along the same value lines. They might not be doing the same thing. They might have a totally different approach to wind energy, and that's just fine because we need that diversity of ideas, but we need that common respect and support of each other to each individually and collectively bring our dreams to life. So find those people and hang on. John, how about you? The last thing which we like to talk about, and every one of the ecopreneurs we interviewed for the ecopreneuring book and people we've met on the road, every one of them have a blast doing what they're doing. If they, if they didn't, they would just move on to something else. You know, if we're not doing what we really enjoy, then why are we doing it? You know, have fun in what you're doing, enjoy what you're doing, and most often than not, you know, the money side of it will, if not follow immediately will follow enough to be able to allow you to continue to do the things you're doing. And that gets back to Lisa's point about living at or below your means and, and focusing in on what's really important. I want to thank you both so much for joining me today. I'll leave our listeners with the three messages you have. Have purpose, live well, restore earth. 
check out www.inserendipity.com. Learn more about Lisa Kiverest and John Ivanko. I want to remind people that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And thank you so much, Lisa and John, for your inspiration. Thank you. Thank you.